0: Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkeiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. This episode, we're talking to a friend of mine, Joey Tuminello. Joey, like me, works on a number of quite different questions in philosophy, so our conversation covers a lot of ground. First, we talk about the difference between food and drugs. You know, they're both things we ingest that have effects on our bodies, but most people in our culture think there's a pretty bright line between the two. If you push people to explain what the difference is, or if you bring up borderline cases between the two, though, it becomes pretty clear that most of us don't have a great handle on what the difference between food and drugs actually is. Anytime there's a commonly used term or terms that seem to do a lot of work, but people can't exactly explain what they mean, philosophers get pretty excited to dig in and explore. And Joey's dissertation drilled down on the different ways these concepts are employed in our culture. The second topic we talk about is the idea of eating invasive species. There's a small but growing invasive ore movement in America as people seek to get rid of invasive species, whatever that term exactly means, any way they can, and some of them see eating as a good way to go about it. Joey has written on the ways in which it sometimes seems like ethical considerations we would usually have about eating animals or hunting, or the way we treat things that become our food can go out the window when we're doing the larger good of getting rid of invasive species. Then we switch gears and talk about animal ethics and food ethics in the Jain religious and philosophical tradition, which Joey has also written quite a bit on. But in and amongst all that research, Joey also works on engaged activism, which connects to his philosophical commitments. What he and some others called field philosophy, or as others say, engaged philosophy. Both of those terms were designed to contrast with the more traditional applied philosophy, which is sometimes seen as academic philosophers working out some abstract concept in their heads and then applying it to real-world problems. Instead, in field or engaged philosophy... Work is done on issues that mean something to the person doing that work, and out of it, interesting philosophical questions arise. So, in our fourth and final segment of the show, we talk about Joey's activist work and how it connects back to the philosophical commitments we discussed earlier. Let me read you Joey's autobiography. Dr. Joey Tuminello is an assistant professor of philosophy at McNeese State University, which is in Lake Charles, Louisiana and a program director for the nonprofit agricultural advocacy group Farm Forward. In both of those capacities, his work is often focused at the intersection of food, animal, and environmental ethics. His most recent academic research has been focused on cultivating the hermeneutics and ontology of food. I'm going to ask him about both of those terms in the interview, but basically it's examining interpretations of what food is in relation to other edible things what makes particular foods instances of larger categories of dishes, as well as thinking through implications of these interpretations regarding matters of ethics, justice, and regulation. In his advocacy work, Joey organizes an annual webinar event with the author Jonathan Safran Foer, focused on Foer's 2009 book, Eating Animals, which is a great book, by the way. I recommend it to everybody. And um, as you'll hear in the interview, Joey's uh, expanding that program now and doing other uh, webinars as well. You should... um, Click on the Farm Forward link in the show notes to see uh, how you can get involved with that if you're interested. Joey also works on a number of related projects to encourage people to think together about ethical implications of food production and consumption. And now, here's my conversation with Joey Tuminello. Joey, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Um, Thanks so much for having me, Ian.
0: That's great. I have to ask, uh, how the pandemic we're in has been treating you?
1: Um, So far, it is okay. All things considered, I have to say. Uh, For one, I am grateful to be in a position where my finances aren't directly impacted. So, you know, our classes as yours are and everyone else's, I guess, are all online now. Um, I'm teaching mostly sections of biomedical ethics, uh, which is basically what I was hired to do at McNeese. And um, some of those uh, sections are for an RN to BSN program, meaning that a lot of my students are actually right now full-time registered nurses. Um, Sometimes single parents are, you know, often working overtime with um, COVID testing at the moment. And so I just see my role right now um, as trying to be as supportive as possible and trying to make sure that everyone has the resources that they need and really, just trying to prioritize humaneness and being kind and reasonable um, and to remember where our priorities ought to be right now. Um, It's, you know, this is projected to be um, the worst week or one of the worst weeks we've seen yet. And people have made comparisons with Pearl Harbor in terms of impact. um, And so it's just, uh, it's key for me to try to be there for my students right now. And I'm just trying to make the most of being at home and, grading on my front porch were impossible, but, you know, it it could be worse for me. How about you?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting the way that, uh, you know, there's a division between people who have jobs that allow them to stay home and the sort of, you know, difficulties that arise for that. I'm trying to teach my children uh, their homeschooled elementary program, as well as work with my students online, but then also a lot of our students, like yours and mine, who are uh, actually, you know, unable to to utilize that and are out there working. I have students who are paramedics, so students who are in volunteer firefighters, and students who work at Costco, which has also become suddenly a hazardous and essential job.
1: Right. All
0: right. Yeah. Well, so that's very depressing. But let's, <laughs> the nice thing about people being trapped at home is that they agree to be on my podcast. Um, the first sort of area I want to talk about is this distinction you've made um, in various publications about food and drugs. Ah, yeah. Um, sure. So first of all, though, uh, you've said uh, in various places when you're talking about this, that uh, this is a question of ontology. What does, what does that word mean for people that don't know?
1: Yeah, thanks Ian, um, that's a great question. So, ontology is basically the study of being or the study of existence, and we historically in philosophy think about it as one of the main branches of philosophical thought, which I just kind of see as a category of questions that we ask, uh, what, what does it mean for something to exist? How do things exist? Uh, what makes something a member of a la- larger category of beings or entities. Uh, and so in my, in my work on food and drug ontology, I'm really trying to take a, a hermeneutic approach, which would be focusing on the way that we interpret existence or the way that we interpret categories of edible things.
0: So is ontology a common area of research, uh, thinking about philosophy of food, or has it been historically?
1: Um, it hasn't been, though there are some very important strands of thought that I pick up on. And so I, just for a, a little bit of background, so I completed my dissertation about a year and a half ago on the subject, uh, the food-drug relationship in health and medicine. And um, in my wit review, basically and in my research, I saw that there there are some important uh, historical precedents to the work that I'm developing currently and that I was working on in my dissertation. So. I went to uh, the University of North Texas to work on my PhD specifically because, one, their concentration in environmental philosophy. They had basically poached a lot of the founders of that area uh, years before. And also my advisor, David Kaplan, or David M. Kaplan, there's a lot of David Kaplans in philosophy apparently, Um, is the director of the Philosophy of Food Project at UNT. And at the time that I came into the program, he had just edited a volume on just called the philosophy of food. And the introduction to that volume for me really does a a spectacular job of pointing towards uh, interesting but largely unexplored philosophical terrain in the philosophy of food. Um, That includes food epistemology, questions of trust, for instance, in the food system and belief in safety of foods, as well as many other areas that I'm sure you're familiar with through, through your research in epistemology. Um, but also food ontology. So questions about what makes a food what it is or what makes something a food rather than some some other kind of thing, being, or entity. Um, Lisa Heldke in the early 90s co-edited a volume called Cooking, Eating, Thinking, uh, where she also does make some important headway in the development of food ontology. She has an article uh, that came out in uh, Radical, I think Journal of Radical Philosophy, uh, a few years ago, where she she takes an important stance against um, understanding foods strictly in terms of their material components when we make ethical judgments. For instance, assuming that a banana is automatically ethical or it's morally permissible to consume uh, simply based on it not containing animal products, right? Because that on its own doesn't give us insight into the way that it was produced harvested, distributed, et cetera, the way that uh, often when we use terms like cruelty free, what we really might mean or the closest we could get to something meaningful would be like low cruelty or something like that. Sometimes when we take a strictly uh, like a reductive materialist account of what makes food what it is, that leaves out um, or makes renders invisible the lives of the humans that are often involved in its production distribution. And consumption so there are and actually in, in in the work that you had done with Samantha Knoll and local food systems I think you make an important point in uh, in that article that these major uh, categories of, of local food movements are predicated on uh, differing understandings of what food is so I'm trying to pick up on and trying to elaborate on some of those strains of thought in, in my work
0: okay so this is one of those, you know, the difference between food and drugs is one of those um, things that philosophers do, where since you're using words that are in common speech, I would imagine a reaction you get from some people as, is, well, isn't it obvious? Like people who haven't thought much about it just intuitively sense there must be a really clear, bright dividing line between food and drugs.
1: Right. Yes. And so part of what I'm working on is trying to uncover um, why it seems so obvious, right? Right. Um, why does it seem so obviously the case that, or on, on some views at least, that um, food and drugs are these separate, I would call, or we see them or interpret them as these separate ontological categories? Yeah, so um, it, it seems yeah. like there
0: are a few different kinds of uh, views about this that you've mentioned, you know, uh, like I was reading your encyclopedia article and also some of your dissertation. But could you run through some of these like uh, major sort of approaches to food and drugs that people have made?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so one of, the, one of the observations that I made during my, my dissertation research on the subject is that even though there's, there's tons of variation in different ways that we interpret the relationship between these categories, um, I was able, at least in terms of loose clusters of approaches, um, to classify a lot of these views in terms of, on the one hand, dichotomous approaches, and on the other hand, what I refer to as continuum-based approaches the food-drug relationship. Um, And so basically, dichotomous approaches uh, operate on the assumption that food and drugs exist in some sort of dichotomous or separate way, right? That certain things are certain entities or edible things, as I use my technical term, uh, are either food or drugs, whereas uh, more continuum-based approaches um, operate on the assumption that food and drugs exist in terms of a continuum, or you could say a spectrum, uh, or that a, a single entity is not necessarily strictly either food or drug. Um, what I'm trying, what I really try to cultivate is through, through this approach where we focus on interpretation, I'm not trying to undertake a strict conceptual analysis, or basically I'm not trying to attempt to finalize a strict set of necessary and sufficient conditions that makes something a member of one or the other category. But what I'm really trying to do in my current work is provide a space to unearth the assumptions and presuppositions that guide our interpretations about edible things. Um, So that we can basically, rather than continuously encounter caricatures of each other's views or to, to judge them based on unexamined prejudices, that we can try to bring those, these prejudices, these assumptions, these presuppositions to the forefront of our understanding um, to kind of combat the assumption that we all kind of lapse into, you know, unreflectively or pre-reflectively at one time or another, to kind of combat the assumption that we, we do have some sort of unmediated access to the ultimate nature of reality outside of experience and so I'm not trying to say that there is there is some final universal um, ontological schema that we have to adopt or that we ought to adopt but I'm just trying to to kind of cultivate an awareness of the idea that our uh, our interpretations are shaped by our histories our personal and public histories um, and that there is this important feedback loop between our our general conceptual understanding of the food-drug relationship and how we interpret individual edible things as either food or drug or as potentially on a food-drug continuum.
0: Well, can you give an example of something that for just the average person that they might see as it not being very clear whether or not this is a food or a drug?
1: Oh, sure. Um, I think a good contemporary example might be what's sometimes referred to as the category of functional foods and we're we're even seeing like soda companies infusing their sodas with vitamins right um, supplemental bars that have nutritional content but also provide uh particular vitamins and minerals um, that might be lacking in particular diets or hard to get in those places. We might sometimes err on the side of seeing these things as foods sometimes we err on the side of seeing these things as supplements but also not necessarily um have this sort of implicit view that they they must occupy one or the other category
0: yeah that makes sense um what do you think happens when somebody tries to say that this thing that we usually think of as a food we ought to think of as a drug like what kind of move is that so an example I'm thinking of is sometimes people will say like sugar isn't mm-hmm. food right there's right now um, a lot of people who are uh, very anti added sugar in various foods and they want to say, well, you know, it, it acts on your brain like a drug. It's a drug and ought to, you know, therefore, I guess, be more carefully regulated or not be given willy-nilly to children or something like that. I'm wondering what, what kind of move do you think it is when somebody tries to shift something from one of those categories to the other?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one of my, one of the things that I do in my dissertation, I'm happy to, to provide a couple more examples in that area, is I try to look at the, the philosophical assumptions that are undergirding current popular discourses or academic discourses outside of philosophy, um, where they're making what I refer to as as ontological moves or moves that are trying to endorse a shift in our interpretive experience. Um, So I know uh, Robert Lustig and some other uh, authors have recently called for, as you mentioned, the regulation of sugar, um, similar to the way that maybe tobacco and alcohol have been regulated in recent times. In terms of age restrictions, uh, maybe uh, restrictions on geographical proximity to schools, or a tax that is somehow separate from a regular sales tax that you might um, have to already pay for a food substance, right? And so what I'm trying to do is, is you know kind of bring out the, the philosophical assumptions, the ontological assumptions in those discourses. When we raise questions about how something ought to be regulated those are importantly connected to questions about what that entity or thing is or what we take it to be and why. And really, this this gets at my original motivation in trying to cultivate um, the hermeneutics and ontology of food, which is just that in a lot of mainstream applied ethics, there is uh, little or no direct attention on the way that ethics is importantly related to ontology. Whenever we, make, um, whenever we make normative prescriptions about what we ought to do in relation to a particular thing or being or entity, those are importantly connected to what we think that being or entity is, right? How we should treat something or someone has to do with what we take them to be, right? Um, this, is, this is discussed to some extent in applied ethics. In animal ethics, for example, you have Tom Regan Pointing the term subjects of a life and arguing that, you know, beings that fulfill this criteria for subjects of a life um, have certain rights uh, that ought to be accorded to them and respected. Um, But what I'm trying to do is kind of elaborate on those those ontological threads that are often ignored or not really elaborated on in a lot of detail.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, really interesting. It's worth thinking about that um, when we're making a claim like this, you ought to or you ought not to do something implicit in that is saying that this thing is uh, some of some type X such Mm -hmm. that it is natural to act in a certain way toward it. So when you say that sugar is a drug, you know, and uh, I always think of that Simpsons uh, reference where Homer Simpson says,
1: you're confusing drugs with drugs. Ah! (laughs) And he means,
0: you know, like medicine with bad drugs, I guess. So when you say like kids don't do drugs, presumably you aren't saying kids don't take ibuprofen. What you mean is that there's some there's some other category that you're trying to place that in. And then it would be natural that you would follow that prescription. And and speaking of which, uh, why are you using that term drugs rather than medicine? Because, you know, I'm from Northern California and quite a number of people where I'm from uh, in Berkeley would happily tell you that the best medicine is eating the right food. You know, this sort of whether it's from an actual like sort of you know, yogic or Ayurvedic kind of tradition, or if it's just an idea that prevention is better than treatment, um, that you ought to eat more healthily rather than, uh, you know, seek what they would think of as medical intervention.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Great question. So, so on my, my use of the term drugs in a particular technical way, I'm real, my, I made that decision because I saw in, in a lot of the discourse that I was interested in examining in my dissertation, I saw a lot of issues regarding the use of drugs in two senses, as a term. Uh, one, the use of drugs in the medicinal sense, as it relates to food. So there are some debates with important philosophical presuppositions about whether or not food should be counted as medicine on one hand. And then on the other hand, I saw the use of drugs in what I refer to as the illicit or detrimental sense. And so on that side, there are then separate debates about uh, the possibility of foods as as drugs of abuse, basically, or drugs of you know addiction, or somehow uh, illicit drugs. And there are also interesting aesthetic implications with this too. Uh, Roger Scruton. Uh, who passed away recently, had a book called I Drink, Therefore I Am, where he actually classifies drinks and foods together, focusing on wine, as separate from drugs because of their capacity to be relished, um, which is something that he he sort of, without defending in a lot of detail, kind of assumes that um, what he refers to as drugs are some sort of ingestible, edible things that are not capable of being relished. Um, Yeah, given, yeah, as you were just pointing out, given the rise of uh, medicinal cannabis, given the rise of cannabis sommeliers and a whole range of of connoisseurship regarding uh, cannabis experiences. I think there's a lot of reason to to call that distinction into question or at least at least to problematize it or to encourage critical reflection on that.
0: Yeah, so let me, let me run a couple of ideas by you of what people might say as a line between food and drugs, and you can tell me what you think about these. Sure. Um, so I would, I would imagine that some people might say, well, you know, one difference is that um, drugs can have a profound chemical effect on our body, mm-hmm. right? Whereas food is food, you know, like maybe there's some, you know, marginal areas where you should eat more healthily or less healthily. Ultimately, food is just converted into vitamins and proteins and such, macro mm-hmm. and micronutrients. But taking a drug can actually alter your body in ways that are significant, whether psychoactively or, you know, doing something to your immune system or, you know, relieving inflammation, something like that. Um, so what do you think about like that kind of a distinction?
1: Yeah, I think that um, there, well, first I'll just say that the experts on subjects like this in terms of the, the psychoactive properties of different edible things are also experiencing debate and disagreement over this idea. And so, this is one of the things that really spurred my, my interest in, in thinking about this philosophically. Um, within psychology, for instance, um, there's some debate on whether foods should be seen as drugs for therapeutic purposes, like the treatment regarding the treatment of eating disorders, for instance, or compulsive eating. Um, so, there, and this is all research coming out like within the like the first decade and a half of the 2000s, so like 2000 through 2015, I started seeing this. Um, when I look back through the research, there's an edited volume, for instance, called "Food as a Drug," um, where actually the editors of that book are, are really arguing that uh, we should reject what they refer to as the food addictions model. They argue, based on the data that they're looking at, that the effects of food on mood and behavior aren't sufficiently similar to psychoactive properties of drugs. So, for example, if patients are made to feel powerless regarding compulsive eating, this could end up promoting feelings of deprivation or low self-efficacy. And so a lot of the authors within that volume are really arguing against seeing food as a drug, um, also operating on the assumption that addiction could be this potential connector between the categories of food and drug, but ultimately arguing in, in favor of rejection of the food addictions model. And then on the other side, around that same time, there was a a handbook that came out just called Food and Addiction. And the editors of that book, also, and many of the contributors also in psychology and nutritional science, uh, were endorsing really what I would refer to as a more continuum based approach to the food drug relationship, uh, arguing that food can act on the brain as an addictive substance. And they even say, and I I had just a little quote that I excerpted in my notes just like drugs of abuse brain-rewarding effects and reinforcement from food can lead to a loss of self-control. And so even amongst the, the, the experts on how we should think about edible substances or things, there is disagreement on this uh, subject. But certainly it calls into question for me philosophically um, why we are trying to appeal to the intrinsic properties of something in terms of adequately defining it or understanding it in an ontological sense. And so really one of the, the lines of thought I'm, I'm trying to develop right now in my work is that um, there's not necessarily some kind of intrinsic separate or isolated ontological status, maybe if anything, right? Um, but in this case of, of what, we, what I refer to as edible things, which could be food and or drugs, um, it has to do with the encounter. It has to do with some kind of complex combination of properties that it may have in relation to the intention of use uh and our 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 past interpretations and histories that have led us to see those things in a certain way
0: okay yeah and i think that certainly um you know we're quick to downplay the role that food can have uh on our bodies and just think of it as like fuel in a way that uh drugs maybe uh, mm-hmm. we already see as having you know a more profound effect than that right but Uh, what would you think? So another uh, sort of intuitive, maybe, you know, commonsensical view uh, that occurs to me is, so what if someone said to you, okay, but drugs are isolated things. They're isolated parts. So, you know, an orange is food. It's a, it's a whole, it's a gestalt of lots of Mm -hmm. different kinds of vitamins, right? It has vitamin C in it and other things. Um, And each of those could be extracted from the orange and then that would be a drug, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you take the, caffeine out of uh you know some out of chocolate for example caffeine is a drug but chocolate is a gestalt of a lot of different sorts of things
1: mm-hmm. um
0: and so when you're pointing at drugs what you're trying to do is point at something that is only one thing it's whole uh you know it's like one particular chemical compound and it only has one particular effect on us
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah so i In in a lot of my research, you know, of course, there there are these issues that I encounter with the ambiguities of language. And so, yes, sometimes drug, like the word drug, is used to refer to uh, a particular single isolated compound. Sometimes, right, uh, whenever we reference marijuana as a drug, for instance, uh, we're not necessarily using it in that way. Right. Yeah, good example. And at the same time, uh, I think... um, the social scientist and philosopher Georgi Skranis does some really good work on this in his book Nutritionism, where mm-hmm. he, he provides a really nice critique of what he refers to as nutritional ideology, um, which is something that we see crop up a lot in popular discourse on diets, for instance, or this idea that there are certain compounds that are inherently good or inherently bad, and this sort of essentializing discourse along the lines of, for example, the idea that. You know, either fat is is good for you and we should focus on ingesting it um, within moderation or fat is just bad for you and we should focus on low fat and fat-free foods, you know, exclusively. And whenever we cultivate a more nuanced understanding of, of nutrients, we see that they they are, even though they might be capable of being isolated physically, it's hard to really fully understand them outside of the context that they operate in. So outside of the the larger context of what they might be ingested alongside of or how they might act in specific individuals. And, you know, we see, of course, more and more research coming out saying that there are certain fats that are maybe more beneficial than others. Uh, Trans fats, for instance, we probably should be avoiding at all costs, while uh, other sorts of fats might be like um, medium chain fatty acids, for instance, can actually have a lot of health benefits, maybe even have fat burning properties which people may think is maybe somewhat paradoxical.
0: <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I think that's right. It's just interesting that I, maybe I should have somebody on at some point to talk about this idea of this nutritionism or generally just reductionism as applied to food. But I feel like um, maybe it's because of taking some science classes or something, but most people in the United States uh, suspect that there's, that reductionism, some version of reductionism is true, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, in all fields, that you know, if you can explain something as a collection of parts, then that collection of parts is a more basic, more true understanding of what's going on than looking at it at a higher level. Right. You know, so people will say something like, well, that's just chemicals, you know, like, you know, your attraction to this other person is just chemicals in your brain. Um, and likewise, the idea that food can be just reduced to like the six things that went into that, and mm-hmm. that that's fundamentally, that's what it is. And, th- and you're not losing anything. I think a lot of philosophers have pointed out that this is less true than it appears to people.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's an important point to keep in mind. Um, we sometimes tend towards, yeah, this idea that we, we can provide the best explanation of what something is by breaking it down into its component parts, um, going farther and farther, right, um, until we, we kind of isolate the most essential compounds of that. Um, but that, that has also led to, I think, a lot of issues in terms of the synthesizing drugs. But interestingly, whenever you, whenever you look at the the history of synthesizing drugs starting, I think in like the mid 19th century, um, that does map on, even though I I don't think we can totally explain dichotomous approaches to the food food drug relationship strictly in terms of uh, reductivist approaches, um, the development of synthesized drugs does map on chronologically to the sort of prevalence of dichotomous approaches within science and Western medicine Uh, to the food-drug relationship.
0: Well, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder how much this discourse about drugs and food maps onto the discourse of natural and unnatural, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, food is something natural, as long as it's natural food, I guess. Right. Um, And then something that is synthesized is a drug or something that you pull out of the food, now that's artificial and it's a drug. Um, Or as you're talking about functional foods, you know, you can add um, iodine to salt, Mm
1: -hmm. uh,
0: which makes it healthier in some respects but there's gonna be a resistance. I mean, uh, you know, go Google people's feelings about adding fluoride to water, for example. Right. That, uh, you know, adding quote-unquote drugs, something that's seen as artificial, to something that's natural, then taints that natural thing and makes it itself suspect.
1: Right, yeah, 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 I, and I think it's, I think it does, in a sense, at least in, to some degree, I think it does fall victim to the naturalistic fallacy, and I illustrate the naturalistic fallacy to my students a lot. Through references to examples from agriculture, um, so I'll show them a picture of teosinte, you know, the predecessor of modern-day corn, for instance, and all these other examples that we can point to, showing us that you know, before the uh, advent of genetic modification, we've been selectively breeding for a very long time, and that's really one of the defining uh, components of agriculture, as opposed to foraging, for example. Uh, And that doesn't necessarily make something natural or unnatural. So to some extent, this debate is also predicated on some kind of human exceptionalism, that once we enact or once we act on certain compounds in certain ways, uh, now it's no longer natural as opposed to being untouched, if that's possible, right, by human intervention.
0: Yeah. So what sort of implications to policy do you think that this, uh, you know, this problematizing, this uh, fuzzifying of the distinction between food and drugs might have.
1: Yeah, so I think um, one of the things that I noted in my dissertation, at least not addressing the philosophical underpinnings can lead to certain prejudices and how we understand disparate systems of knowledge. And so this is something that I spent some time reflecting on in terms of medicine. So for instance, within contemporary Western or, or sometimes called allopathic medicine, I found that there are largely dichotomous ontological views regarding food and drugs. Uh, As we were just discussing, plant compounds might be recognized as something like proto-medicines, willow bark, you know, we're deriving salicylic acid from willow bark. It's a precursor for aspirin, for instance. Um, But that at the same time, this can, it doesn't necessarily have to be this way, but in practice, this ends up influencing a perspective where Um, we coined terms like complementary or alternative medicine in the first place. Um, and also view those practices with care and skepticism at best. Um, sometimes, you know, and often really lumping in disparate traditions of knowledge like Ayurvedic medicine, classical Chinese medicine, other forms of of medical knowledge as alternative. And so... Um, again, I'm not trying to take a final stance on how we ought to uh, understand the food-drug relationship, but we ought to try to practice, I think, some some humility in our understanding, some openness um, to disparate viewpoints that is not always there, right? Uh, that's sometimes sorely lacking. So for instance, um, it's it's been noted by, by many people besides me that nutritional education in Uh, contemporary medical school is sorely lacking. I think the National Academy of Science recommended 25 hours of nutritional education for medical school programs. And the vast majority of them, I think 71% at the the last figure I looked at of US medical schools are providing less than that. That 36% of those schools are providing less than half of that recommended amount of nutrition education. And so I also see this as predicated on a dichotomous understanding of food and drugs. In contemporary allopathic medicine, we ought to focus specifically on, um, not, not strictly on the prescription of drugs, though there is a problem with the overprescription of drugs to some degree, um, often at the expense of understanding in a more comprehensive way, the, the way that foods also impact our health, whether we think of them as on a continuum or not, You know, with drugs or medicines. But in the last few years, um, there have been at least 20 medical schools that have really made efforts to increase nutrition education. Uh, I know at Tulane, for instance, in New Orleans, they've actually had cooking classes that they've had uh, medical students enroll in to try to spur their increased nutritional education. And there are even emerging, we're referred to as food pharmacies, <coughs> supported by the medical industry, basically on-site <laughs> pantries, stocked with fresh produce, whole grains, with physicians on hand to make recommendations, who've had extra nutritional training. And some of these physicians have even adopted the language of prescribing things like green beans and carrots instead of what they refer to as as medication. And so I see this as evidence of a shift in our interpretations of the food-drug relationship, uh, not necessarily abandoning the idea that synthesized medicine has certain advantages because it's been engineered for specific purposes but at the same time, understanding at least, you know, at the very least, that uh, foods play an important role in health in a way that's historically been overlooked, at least throughout the 20th century.
0: Yeah, I think even just um, to pick a very practical example, if people think more about how there isn't a clean, there isn't necessarily a clean definition between food and drugs, we might want to reflect a little bit more on what we're eating and the way that it might have an effect on us. I mean, certainly on things like mood, on um, ability to focus, concentrate, sleep, things like that, that people often ignore or they think, well, you know, as long as I've had a, I've had a healthy dinner or I've had a healthy breakfast without thinking more uh, in more detail about it. Whereas you wouldn't say, well, as long as I've taken some pills or, you know, some drugs, I feel like, I'm okay.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you mentioned the, the the interpretation of food as fuel earlier. And that's also um, an interpretive mode that I saw reflected in, in some of my research in, in medical literature, for instance, or in, in the discourse on functional foods, the idea that um, we used to see food as merely fuel, so this very essentialist kind of chronological approach, um, now it serves other functions. And, and I, I, you know given the aesthetic dimensions of human experience, Uh, I doubt that it was ever simply fuel in every possible case prior to a certain historical period. Yeah, Um, that's a
0: very strange claim. Uh, Presumably, people first experienced food as a pleasurable thing to do. I mean, if the claim were that historically, before there were fuels that people thought of as fuels, we were (laughs) thinking of food as fuels. I mean, clearly, it's a metaphor that only would have come about after we started having need for fuel, like, you know, at least the Industrial Revolution.
1: Right. Right. Um, yeah, so I thought that that was, that was kind of fascinating to think about as well. And I was actually, I was thinking about this earlier today, but um, w- there are a lot of things that people critique without kind of being aware of the the ontological views that are undergirding their, their understandings. And so, for instance, uh, like certain fast food places have wood cellulose as a filler or a binder in yeah. refried beans, for instance. We usually don't think about Wood as as an ingestible food substance, Uh, and yet at least some substance being derived from from trees is being used as food additives. So
0: yeah, it's interesting. So let me um, turn tax pretty sharply and ask you because there's so many areas that you work on that I think are interesting. Let me do a couple of quick hits uh, before I get to your practical work, but some more academic issues you've raised. One thing that you've talked about in print and also I've seen you present on this before is this idea of um, eating invasives. So, uh, first of all, let's talk about that term. Uh, what is, what's meant by an invasive species?
1: Right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a can of worms really, (laughs) no pun intended. Um, yeah. So I did my master's thesis on the ethics of invasive species management. Part of the work that I've elaborated on since then has been the sort of conceptual critique of terminology within invasion biology, and wildlife management. Um, typically like I guess the the basic understanding of invasive in that context is organisms that have been introduced from outside of a particular area like outside of the area where we might say they are native um, that are causing some sort of harm that could be cashed out in terms of ecological harm uh, sometimes we we use the concept of ecological harm to just refer to things that are inconvenient or maybe detrimental to to humans right um, but that's the that would be the basic understanding of invasives or invasiveness
0: yeah I think that cash out is the right term uh, it since often what matters is whether or not the new species introduced has a noticeable economic impact uh, that's right on what we're doing
1: yeah yeah and I yeah I also I appreciate and in some of my more recent work I've also taken your suggestion to bring out the more Uh, political and capitalist underpinnings of a lot of biological invasions. Um, I was thinking, I did, uh, I grew up in South Louisiana where Nutria, large rodent, are are an invasive species in the coastal wetlands and elsewhere in the US, they were brought in in the early 20th century by entrepreneurs like the guy who founded Tabasco sauce, for instance, as a fur commodity. Um, They escaped basically from where they were being held captive and now they erode large portions of the coastal wetlands each year. And even though there is at least one city park I'm aware of in South Louisiana uh, where I grew up where people go to watch Nutria play and they are perceived as enhancing the aesthetic dimensions of park visitors, outside of that context, they are seen as these ecological nuisances that basically have to be bounty hunted at all costs with really little or no concern for um the way that they're managed the way that they are killed and and really whether or not this is the most appropriate or ethical management strategy yeah
0: and i mean it it is interesting the way we assume that an invasion i mean listen to the word is going to be of some evil foreigner i mean you can talk a lot about the way that that plays into sort of colonialist or white supremacist discourse um and will necessarily do damage to the ecosystem but i was recently reading an article suggesting for example that the hippopotami that uh, are in Colombia as a result of uh, Chapo uh, releasing these pet hippopotamuses, um, that they might actually be playing a beneficial role in the ecosystem, according to some research.
1: Yep. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's, a, there's a great new book. Well, I guess it's, it's several years old now, but it's called The New Wild, and it's written by a journalist, Fred Pierce. Yeah. Uh, the, the subtitle is something like, Why Invasive Species or are, are Will Be Nature's Salvation? Um, so, yes, there are definitely some disparate perspectives on that. There's actually there's another book that came out quite a while back called Invasion Biology Critique of a Pseudoscience. Um, so, there, there are definitely some people who, and there's another great book called The Ethics and Rhetoric of Invasion Ecology that does some incredible work on the rhetorical dimensions of, of invasion biology and ecology, basically. Um, so, certainly other people are picking up on, on those issues in some very important philosophical ways. Um, and yeah, I did some work a while back, uh, an encyclopedia entry on eating invasive species, where I was exploring what's referred to as the invasive war movement. Um, so, you know, the vor suffix related to eating, um, basically the practice of and promotion of eating invasive species as a management strategy.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that. So the idea is if invasive species are bad, like universally bad and need to be eliminated, like actually, you know, completely eliminated, then uh, you know, you've written that that sort of means to some people that all bets are off uh, ethically.
1: Right. Yeah. There is this idea that if some, if, if some, you know, collection of beings is deemed invasive A lot of people assume, well, even if they're not consciously assuming that, a lot of people operate on the basis that this invasive label strips them of any sort of potential ethical standing that they might have had before. Um, And so I I try to be careful in in a lot of my, my philosophical arguments. I'm not trying to take an absolutist approach and say nothing should ever be done, no action should ever be taken to try to control species or members of species that are given this label, but at the same time, we have to try to understand the larger, um, basically the larger vectors that are not always addressed, they're sometimes addressed. Of course, a lot of people do agree on both sides of the issue that preventative methods are, are most helpful, but at the same time, we often fail to to really appreciate the dimensions of uh, human introduction in the developments of what we refer to as biological invasions, that, that these beings are doing what they do by virtue of being a partic- member of a particular species and a particular kind of individual, and they happen to be doing it in a place that, you know, may or may not actually uh, be ecologically detrimental.
0: Yeah, so how does that, um, that idea of, uh, you know, because they're an invader, then you're defending, you know, the, the native flora and fauna, feed into this idea of being an invasive or.
1: Yeah, I think it, it really, uh, it empowers people, basically. Um, it, I think that, and of course, you know, we, I, I, I talked about a couple of examples. There are invasive species cookoffs. There's a pretty well-known restaurant in Connecticut that is, uh, I think it's all foraged invasive species or, or mostly uh, foraged invasive species. And so I think really one of the, the practical implications of the invasive or label is empowerment. Um, it gives people, especially people who, aren't, who may not be really critically reflecting on this idea, it gives them the impetus to take action because they're operating on the understanding that they're doing a good thing. You know, they're the good guys in this situation. We're trying to fight the invaders.
0: Yeah, and I think, of course, you can be an invasivore for um, plants, obviously, like people in the yeah. kudzu or whatever. Right. But I think that it interacts interestingly with people that have some reservations about eating animals but they feel like you know this is justified in the same way that maybe somebody who eats roadkill is justified because uh, the thing that you're eating has some different ethical status.
1: That's right, yeah, yeah. And it's also important to point out, as you were just kind of alluding to, that most invasives or most most uh, species categorized as invasive, I'll say, are plant species. And really one of the things that I, I think one of the saving graces of at least some dimensions of the invasive war movement is recognizing that Plants that we might have just totally destroyed beforehand actually have some important nutritional properties that, you know, if we are going to harvest them in some kind of attempt to control or eradicate them, uh, at least we don't want to miss out on sources of food that people could benefit from. Um, There's a website called ethieinvaders.org. There are probably multiple other websites since I wrote that article um, that are collecting recipes like kudzu blossom sorbet, or I lived in Oregon for a few years before I moved to Louisiana in 2019 for my current job. And blackberry is probably our most invasive plant species, at least where I was living in Corvallis. And so, you know, it, it can be aggravating if you're not tending to it. But look, you, you can go to any any area, any, any uh, you know, like basically natural area that is less directly controlled through human intervention, and you can pick a bunch of blackberries.
0: Or even dandelions, which are themselves invasive species.
1: Right. Yeah. So, a uh, completely
0: different topic because you work on so many different uh, areas, which I love because I also jump around a lot, is your work on Jainism. So, yeah. And by that, I mean the religion. How did you get involved and interested in uh, Jainist approaches to food and animals?
1: Yeah. So, um, in my master's program at Colorado State University, I started doing more research on. Eastern philosophical approaches, specifically, I, uh, one of my professors, luckily, I was able to work with uh, Matthew McKenzie there, who got his doctorate at University of Hawaii, Manoa, which is well known for its program in comparative philosophy. And they also run the journal Philosophy East and West. Um, and so I was able to study Buddhist and Hindu approaches to identity and the self. And I was part of a Tibetan Buddhist meditation and study group uh, when I was in Colorado as well. And um, there is a, uh, a lesser known Indic tradition that is uh, Jainism. It arose uh, around the same time as Buddhism um, as a reaction to some of the, the tenets of what we now refer to as Hinduism that was coined by outsiders. Um, and whenever I got, I moved to, to Denton, Texas for my, my doctoral work at University of North Texas. It turns out that the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex. Has a relatively large Jain population, and they have a big Jain temple in the Dallas area. And one of my professors was his name is uh, Dr. Pankaj Jain, who is um, he's sort of a pluralist in his in his personal practice, but does a lot of scholarship on on Hinduism and Jainism in relation to animal and environmental ethics. And I really, as I as I became more immersed in in Jainism, I was really impressed and um, sort of moved by the way, by the emphasis that they put on nonviolence in their personal practices. And I was able to have some interaction, uh, with the Jane community in Dallas, um, during that time. And I ended up doing some research and attending a a retreat for Jane, young Janes in London, um, that ended up leading to me developing a book chapter for the, uh, the Rutledge Handbook of Religion and Animal Ethics on, on Jainism, basically, and, and animal ethics.
0: So for people that don't know, what uh, are the approaches to food ethics and animal ethics within Jainism?
1: Yeah, so uh, I think of of certain Jain practices as actually surprisingly close to what we might refer to as, as fruitarian, basically. Um, They're not necessarily couched in those terms, but um, Jains see consciousness as something that permeates existence um, beyond just um, the beings that we might typically attribute consciousness to in the uh, traditional or like conventional mainstream Western sense. And so even root vegetables, because of their capacity to spur new life, uh, are typically advocated against consumption, consuming within Jainism. Um, Onions and garlic, for instance, if you, if you get, I have a Jain Indian cookbook, which is really fascinating and awesome too. Um, they, they actually are cooking all their food without onions and garlic, which is, it's not standard in, in Indian food broadly construed. And you can use things like hing or asafoetida, which has that sort of umami flavor instead. Um, but because of their, because of the importance that Jainism places on, on nonviolence, really all Jains are vegetarian. And a growing number of the younger generation of Janes are just going fully vegan um, through this sort of um, emerging understanding of practices within the dairy industry and the ecological effects of industrial animal agriculture.
0: So what's the underlying sort of uh, religious philosophical commitments they have that end up manifesting that way?
1: Uh basically um we can we can shed negative karma through the cultivation of compassionate actions um that is at the ascetic level when you're dealing with the the monks and nuns as we would say um that manifests in somewhat more intense practices than with lay jains. um so a lot of people or i'd say people who have some familiarity with jainism are typically thinking about somebody (laughs) with With the the mapati or the mouth covering uh dusting their path as they walk, um, and that's typically reserved for practices amongst the ascetics within Jainism, but they will also engage in in similar practices like inspecting their bed before they lay down to make sure that they're not hurting insects or anything like that. The mouth covering that I mentioned just now is in place technically to prevent the inhalation of microorganisms uh and so not not all Jains adhere to uh, the doctrine of nonviolence, or ahimsa to this same degree, but it is something that is present. And that I I found them, you know, even lay Janes to be very, very conscious of this in their actions, uh, in a way that people of other faiths or people, you know, other people in general are are not necessarily as just, it's not necessarily at the forefront of their thought, as I've seen in members of the Jane community.
0: Sure. Has that affected you? I mean, so, you know, you're not Jane yourself, but uh, I'm always interested in the benefits of thinking through these other philosophical or religious traditions um, and how they can reflect back on your own life.
1: Yeah, I I really, um, it's been harder since I moved to Louisiana. I grew up in Louisiana, as I mentioned earlier, but I just moved back for a job and um, dealing with bugs here is a little bit different maybe from what I was dealing with in Oregon. But um, I really have, Try to cultivate in my in my everyday practices an understanding that um, other beings don't exist. I mean, this is it's it, it, it is it bears some similarity to Tom Regan's philosophy, but but maybe in a in a different way. But I try to cultivate this understanding that other beings don't exist as instruments for me to utilize or um, to treat in a way that as if they exist strictly for my satisfaction or purposes. And so I do try to bring that into my everyday experiences as much as is possible.
0: Great, yeah, I mean, uh, I live here in South Texas, which isn't too dissimilar from Louisiana in terms of climate. Right. And so we get some pretty big bugs here too. And one of my colleagues who's Buddhist, or at least um, practices many precepts of Buddhism, uh, always makes it a point to escort all of the big bugs that get in his house outside and explain that he would really appreciate if they lived in the backyard rather than coming in.
1: <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs>
0: uh, so uh, let me ask about your um, activist work, because you aren't just um, an academic, not that there's anything wrong with just being right. an academic academics are listening to this. Um, obviously you're doing great work as an academic um, embodying in yourself what our utopia future will look like where people can research the things that they love. But, um, you know, you're talking about um, bringing into your consciousness this idea that animals might not just be an instrument for ourselves. Um, you're also working with this organization Farm Forward on some of those uh, issues. So can you tell me what is Farm Forward?
1: Yeah, thank you. So, Form Forward is it's a nonprofit advocacy group. I describe them as agricultural advocacy. We do a lot of work specifically in animal advocacy. It was founded in 2007 and really bills itself as the nation's first nonprofit devoted exclusively to ending factory farming.
0: How are they trying to go about ending factory farming? Because that's obviously a giant, uh, multi staged.
1: Right. Problem. Yes, uh it's extremely complex and we are we're trying to do that on a number of fronts. Uh we form coalitions to work on campaigns with a number of other nonprofits. We do consultancy work with those nonprofits and also with industry um as it's warranted and I my my main work with them has been on the educational front. Um so I got involved with Form Forward in 2011 I was about halfway through my master's program and also around the same time I was getting interested in animal ethics my master's advisor was Bernard Rowland, um, who's done a lot of work in, in animal ethics basically sure. and a lot of consultancy with with industry and really it has been kind of known as um, doing like some extremely I would say apply or what we might say these days as fueled philosophy or something like that He's really directly working with a lot of people in various industries, food, the Rodeo Cowboys Association, Petco, all these different groups. Um, And he happened to be on the board of directors for Forum Forward. And whenever they reached out to him to see if they had had any grad students interested in doing research with them, he recommended me. So I got, whenever I first got involved with them, I was doing a series of research projects to develop our consultancy with uh, the ASPCA that at, at the time was just starting to get interested in having more nuanced positions on food animals rather than mostly just focusing on companion animals. Um, so I basically, at the first thing I did was put together a bunch of annotated bibliographies recommending multi-tiered positions on various practices in industrial agriculture. So for instance, we might say uh, on the subject of various surgical mutilations like de-beaking chickens, why should ideally, why should this not happen? Uh, you know, we're we're addressing a symptom of a larger problem. Feather pecking and cannibalism increase in crowded circumstances that are emblematic of industrial agriculture. And even though there are a lot of good ethical reasons to think that we shouldn't be doing this, um, why, if we're going to do it, what should we do and why? You know, so why, you know, laser debeaking might be higher welfare than de-beaking with a hot blade for various reasons. And so in um, a lot of our kind of pragmatic work, we really, we use phrases like higher welfare to insinuate that we're not necessarily trying to say that this is a very good practice or even an ethical practice, but that it's comparatively higher welfare than other practices. And so that really um, gets to a larger issue is that one of our approaches as an organization is to try to talk about these ways that are in uh, different practices that we could do in animal ethics very inclusive and not alienating um, that people, and you know, we can talk also about the exploitation of farmers and the difficulties that they experience uh, within the industry as well, um, that it's important for all of us to try to come together and think through these problems and do what we can do to, to make the world a better place um, than to be very kind of strict or absolutist uh, in our prescriptions for action.
0: So who do you take to be your audience when you say um, that we shouldn't be de-beaking chickens, or at least um, if we are going to do it, then try to do it in a a more humane way. Um, Who is, uh, who's the we? Like, are are you trying to speak to farmers or to people who own these factory farms or to regulators saying that, you know, there ought to be some kind of law like California has tried to pass in the past. Um, Like, who do you take to be your audience?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I would say it is some amalgamation of, particular farmers. And, you know, we do, we consult with particular farmers, especially those using pre-industrial genetics outside of the, uh, factory system, uh, as well as, um, people in higher positions of authority within the industry, people who might do regulatory, uh, regulatory work on the issues as well.
0: Okay. I actually sh- should have asked this earlier, but, uh, for people that might not know, can you explain, um, what do you mean when you say factory farming?
1: Oh yeah. So, Another way of describing factory farming is sometimes referred to as industrial animal agriculture or confinement agriculture, uh, basically large concentrations of animals in a relatively small space or environment uh, with the purpose of utilizing them either for their flesh or other byproducts. So
0: what would what would the problem with that be? I mean, if you read papers I've written, you'll see that I agree that there are problems with it. But uh, again, just... F- Uh, for people that might be listening in, what is the problem with maximally, efficiently, profitably trying to raise animals for food?
1: Yeah, uh, there's so many ways to address that question. I mean, one is just, even in terms of being maximally efficient, whenever we look at profit as our strict bottom line, really environmental efficiency goes by the wayside. And so, for instance, meat, Production is not really the most efficient way of so called feeding the world, right? So, a lot of people who are apologists for factory farming make what we call the feed the world argument that this is simply the way that agriculture has to exist in order to provide sufficient food for people. When you make animals the sort of intermediary between the the production of different crops and the provision of food to humans or non human, or yeah, human animals um that inevitably leads to inefficiencies in terms of the amount of inputs the water the energy the food right um that you have to put into the system to to get flesh not not uh also not counting the the bones muscle tissue etc that are not necessarily being directly consumed so first of all it's it's really not even the most efficient way of bringing food to people Um, It also, uh, we've seen recently, especially with the UN report, Livestock's Long Shadow, that industrial animal agriculture is one of the major contributors of greenhouse gases associated with climate change. Um, And also in terms of the individual lives, right, we can raise this question we were just discussing previously, Um, do non-human animals exist to be utilized strictly for human purposes? Perhaps not. I think there's a lot of reason to think not, right? And also the lives of the people who are involved in these situations. Uh, Often these are um, people who are being exploited, the factory farm slaughterhouse workers, the farmers themselves are largely exploited by the industry in terms of having very little control over their practices and being black boxed if they they try to deviate possibly to a more humane way of farming. Um, So I really think from all angles except maybe the very few people at the top who are profiting from this industry uh i don't find it very defensible ethically
0: yeah it's one thing i like about uh farm forward is that it's looking at the effects of factory farming in a wider sense so there are a lot of people that look at the effects on you know the animals that are mostly direct that are most directly influenced by it which i mean there's a case we made ethically <laughs> that sure. what you should look at is you know, the effect on chickens and cows and pigs um, and turkeys and other animals like that, but, and fish too. But uh, the nice thing about Farm Forward and why I think maybe you have a little more uh, ability to get in there, more leverage, is that you're also looking at the effects of factory farming on humans that are involved in the system. Um, Not just consumers who are eating the food, but the people who work in that system. Because what is so often happens in America is setting up a dichotomy between Workers who need jobs and some sort of concern about ethics or the environment that's getting in the way of jobs. But uh, pointing out that these are pretty terrible jobs right. that aren't benefiting the people who have them is uh, you know, maybe a wider conversation.
1: Right, yes. So, speaking of potential issues with strictly reductivist approaches in general, right. um, yeah, whenever we talk about a strictly, I guess you could say, quantitative approach uh, that's focusing on just the raw number of jobs and making evaluative judgments that it's a good thing to have more jobs, um, that leaves out important contextual nuances, right? Like the quality of the job. Um, I mean, the the turnover rate uh, for people working on the kill line in slaughterhouses is unbelievably high for instance. I think there's been some good, uh, I think every 12 seconds is the book. There's been some really good sociological research done on the the kind of interiority or the, the inner lives of the people who are, are working those jobs as well
0: yeah well one book that talks about that quite a bit is uh four's book eating animals through farm forward you work with jonathan saffron for um, to do these sorts of uh webinar events can you talk about those
1: yeah yeah i'll also just say briefly yeah, that my uh my involvement with farm forward was somewhat serendipitous and I, I kind of i forgot to mention this whenever i was talking about getting involved with them earlier but right before, or maybe like six months before I ended up starting my job with Farm Forward, I uh, I had just started grad school. I was in the airport in Denver flying home for Christmas and looking for a book to read on the plane. And I didn't know anything about eating animals. This was about two years after it came out. And I saw it. it you know, the, all of Fowler's books are pretty well designed aesthetically. It just kind of popped out at me. I saw the title, I picked it up, and I was just kind of getting through. Singer's Animal Liberation, Regan's Case for Animal Rights, and books like that. And so it looked like it was just right up my alley. And I devoured it in a couple of days and was just so enthusiastic and recommended it to all these people who were working in similar areas as me. And then six months later or so, I'm in touch with the CEO and the executive director of Forum Forward, and their names struck me as being somewhat familiar. And I look at the back of the book and a couple of references within the body of the text and saw that Well, form forward actually ended up playing a tremendous role in the creation of eating animals that uh, our CEO, Aaron Gross, who founded the organization, uh, actually um, worked closely with forward in the provision of data and uh, putting him in touch with some of the people who were featured in the book. And that this is kind of the flagship book of our organization, really. Um, so the, the, after that research project with the ASPCA, the first thing that they, the next thing that they tasked me with was developing this idea that they had for basically a webinar with Foer to bring him into dialogue with audiences. Um, many of which have read his book or were just interested in the topics. And so in 2012, we launched the first annual Jonathan Safran Foer virtual classroom visit Um, And now we look at that as part of our larger virtual visits uh, series. And this was really at the, kind of the dawn of webinars. Um, But we've had the event every year since then. And since 2012, we've had over 19,000 participants from around the world, uh, many of whom are students. Uh, We don't necessarily require that people have read the book to participate, but we have a lot of teachers who end up adopting it afterwards. Um, It's a great way, um, to involve people in dialogue, to help them think for themselves. And I really do try to approach my advocacy philosophically, which means that still at the forefront of my concerns is helping to not come in with a dogmatic agenda, but to help people to be equipped with the tools to think for themselves um, about these issues and to critically engage with the uh, practices that we often ignore or don't want to know about or take for granted. And I think. Um, working with Jonathan has really um really helped my my personal goal of of helping people to do that and it's it's been i think a really accessible way to engage uh in an author or with an author who's who's had a lot of influence uh in that area. So what so, are the
0: conversations come out of that webinar?
1: Yeah, so i think a lot of it is some of it is very basic issues, some of it is questions of um individual responsibility and i think forward does a lot of great work in kind of combating the compulsion that we sometimes have towards total personal purity in our actions. Um, for instance, one, one conversation or topic of dialogue that I see recur over and over, over the years is this idea that, um, so I'll give you an example to illustrate this. Um, Jonathan will say, well, yeah, so I had a friend, uh, tell me, Oh, well, I was stuck in an airport one night. And the only thing that was open was McDonald's and you know, let's say all they had was chicken nuggets or whatever. So I was vegan or vegetarian before that, and now I'm not. And I think one of the important things that we can try to do is disconnect ourselves from the sort of absolute purity, not to say that it doesn't matter. I think it, very, it, it does very much matter what our personal decisions are, uh, not just for consequence related reasons, but also in terms of character and virtue. Um, but that you know, if I if I tell a single lie as a human being, does that make me a liar? Right? Um, we are more than just the implications of a single action, and so I think Ford does a good job of that. Whereas other people, you know, may be tempted to kind of give up on trying to do any sort of good if they have you know in, at least in their own view if they've fallen short, you know, of their own standards, right. In a which, particular situation,
0: which is what makes that uh, that move so effective, the move where if you announce that you are vegan or, or that you try to eat kosher or any sort of ethical commitment related to food, there's a certain kind of person who will try, who immediately look you up and down to try to find some way in which you aren't holding up to an ideal. So They'll say, well, right. is, are those shoes leather? Is that belt leather?
1: Oh, yes. You know, I, bet you hit a, <laughs> I bet you hit
0: some bugs with your car on your way to work, that kind of thing.
1: That's right. Yeah. And it seems
0: like the move is predicated on an idea that if you aren't perfect, then you're terrible. Right. So if I can point out any problem, then, you know, then you're just as bad as I am. So I don't need to change to be more like you. Or if you are perfect, then you are impossible. right? Right. So if you if you do somehow pass all of these tests, then that's ridiculous. I can never do that. And so likewise, I don't need to make any effort to change myself.
1: That's right. Yeah. I mean, really, regardless of whatever the individual issue is, I think it's just so important to keep in mind that we are. Not perfect. Um, we are all fallible. We all have our blind spots, and we're we all you know that doesn't mean that we can't try to do our best and really try to work with other people and and cultivate dialogue rather than put ourselves in a position where um, we we disparage that sort of interaction.
0: Yeah. Although one thing I like about uh, Thor's book is that. Though I do think that is sort of the takeaway is that things are messy and we are messy people and we need to embrace that, but we can still try to do better. He also has examples like from his own grandmother who refused who was starving yep. during World War II, but refused to eat something that wasn't kosher. Um, yep. even though she was starving. So he the the nice thing about that book is that it isn't didactic in a way that you might expect. That even if he clearly has a thought, he wants to show that there are good char- you know, people of good character that think differently than he does.
1: That's right. Yeah, I think he does a wonderful job of incorporating diverse perspectives. Um, not every He does include also the direct words of multiple other people, not always by name, but he includes, for instance, some, um, some writing from someone who is a vegan who builds slaughterhouses or the, um, the animal rights activists who helped him sneak onto a, a factory poultry farm. Um, they have their own section within the book. Um, there's an industrial animal uh former in the book. There is a um smaller scale or higher welfare former in the book. There are all of these perspectives, not just paraphrased, but actually directly represented in the voices of those very people. And he does a great job of that. I also I uh what resonated with me in the book is his use of anecdotes, as you were just mentioning, uh, that his grandmother, for instance, was a Holocaust survivor, and he does a really good a really good job of illustrating the profound ways in which uh food um makes up who we are right that our identity is is in part predicated on food and you know he talks about the way that she was just very careful about um not wasting food and things of that nature because you know at some point in her life she had no idea when her next meal would come what that meal would consist of and so it's important that we, we don't lose that understanding. And at the same time, we can work to understand how traditions can be shifted or enhanced to take into account our um, evolving self-conceptions and conceptions of our place in the larger world.
0: Yeah, it really shows how fundamental food is to our understanding of ourselves. Although I'm currently, um, I'm like, as, as, as we record this, I'm sitting in a town whose grocery store shelves are all empty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it is the case that, that, uh, you know, changing circumstances are different. And then our conception of the, how available food is going to be, um, you know, how we ought to think of ourselves as people who eat for aesthetic reasons or health reasons, you know, really informs who we are. I, I recommend the book to a lot of people. And the two things that I always say is, cause people will be like, oh, I don't want to read a book about you know, vegan propaganda or whatever (laughs) is, well, first of all, it isn't vegan propaganda. It's just a book about eating animals, that question. But second, maybe examine why you assume that a book about eating animals will be against eating animals. Maybe stop (laughs) and ask what that reveals about your own ethical assumptions.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, Yeah. So uh, yeah, I guess it all, in a lot of ways, for me, it comes back to, to hermeneutics or that understanding that our our experience of, of the world and of ourselves in the world is necessarily interpretive. And it's guided by what Gottimer calls prejudices, not necessarily in the negative sense, but that it's guided by our presuppositions and assumptions. And so I think eating animals actually does a good job of, of challenging those assumptions. And you hear, I, I, I teach with it anytime I'm, I'm teaching a class that's food related, which I try to make most of my classes food related in some way. Uh, I use at least excerpts from eating animals and consistently have people respond. Going into this, I had this certain idea of what this book was gonna be about, and it thwarted my expectations in some way, right?
0: Yeah. So what other sorts of uh, educational outreach kind of events are you doing other than the ones focused on that book?
1: Yeah, so uh, we've started to branch out in our thinking about the virtual visit webinar series, Um, We have one featuring the theologian David Clough, and it's called Animals, Ethics, and the Climate Crisis. And David Clough is doing some excellent work. One of the other areas that Form Forward uh, works on is what we call our uh, Faith and Food Initiative. And so we've actually, we've sponsored the, uh, basically the, the research and writing of a couple of different scholars that are doing some excellent work. On, uh, on food ethics, basically. And so one of those um, is Christopher Carter, who is also a, uh, a Methodist uh, pastor and is doing, and is also a professor of religious studies at the University of San Diego. He's doing some excellent work on uh, veganism in communities of color. And David Clough is a theologian, uh, I believe at the University of Chester. He has a two volume book series called On Animals, and he does, I'm not an expert in in theology broadly construed or specifically Christian theology, but from what I've seen, he does an excellent job without forcing it. Um, But in this kind of organic way, I think he does a lot of good work in decentering the human or challenging human exceptionalism within Christian theology. And so I'm very, we're not strictly focusing on Christian responses to these issues of animal and environmental ethics, um, but I am excited um, to see the the dialogue with with David or Dr. Clough and uh, the other participants in the event uh, regarding animal ethics, environmental ethics, um, as well as a, a new policy that we're developing with a group called the Better Foods Foundation called Default Veg.
0: Cool. Yeah. If if people want to participate in that webinar or, you know, for those of us who are teachers listening to this, have their students participate or just learn more about the various things you have going on with Farm Forward, where would you like to point them?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So if you go to farmforward.com, it should be at the the top of our recently published pages and you'll be able to see Animals, Ethics, and the Climate Crisis, a virtual visit with David Clough. Um, You can also write to me and, you know, of course, also if you just want to correspond about the content of the podcast in general uh, or to sign up for this event, you can write to me at Joseph T. J. O. S. E. P. H. T. at forumforward.com.
0: Great. Yeah, so just to kind of wrap up our conversation, I'm asking everyone that I have on the podcast to send a recipe, uh, which I'll make available to listeners. And the idea, as I uh, describe it, is that I don't want them to feel that they have to come up with the most delicious recipe ever, something fantastic. But actually, I'm interested in some food that has some personal meaning. Um, I do this uh, in my classes by the way, uh, when I teach uh, classes on the philosophy of food, I have my students actually bring food to class that has some personal meaning for them, and uh, some of my students have brought food that they find very gross, they do not enjoy eating it, right. but it has a strong link to their childhood uh to you know growing up poor perhaps, or something that they always had to eat uh, for religious reasons, you know that kind of thing. so it doesn't have to be your favorite or even very good but it certainly can be, but the idea is some, some food that's meaningful to you. And I'm looking at your recipe now. Uh, you sent along an instant pot, vegan, Louisiana style, red beans and rice. So can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. My fiance and I have done a lot of work on veganizing Cajun and Creole recipes, basically, because we both grew up in South Louisiana, uh, then both went vegan over the course of like the last decade, basically. And, um, Historically, like Louisiana cuisine in general is, is amazing. And it's one of the top reasons why a lot of people come here for the tourism. Uh, and it's extremely laden with animal products. Um, basically, this comes along with a lot of assumptions about authenticity in cuisine. And one of the things that really inspired me to cultivate food ontology within philosophy of food is this uh, conception of what counts as an authentic food? Does that depend on the presence or absence of specific ingredients? And my approach so far has been more focused on, on the, the presentation and the aesthetic experience of the dish, rather than saying that it must contain meat or seafood, for instance, to count as an authentic instance of this larger dish, right? Um, and so I'm grateful for the opportunity that you gave me to write this down because even though we come up with a lot of recipes like this, we also do good vegan gumbo and jambalaya. We don't usually take the time to to write down what we do, and we're eyeballing ingredients, and we're really kind of, you know, we're we're going with our gut in a lot of ways—no pun intended. And uh, this gave me a chance to sort of write out what I'm doing so that I can help to share this with other people. And I'm doing an Instant Pot version. Which is just kind of convenient. You could do the, you could basically replicate this on the stove or in a regular pressure cooker if you prefer. Um, but it's also, it's a pretty good recipe given our current situation with COVID nineteen because it's a lot of pantry essentials. You could technically omit the vegan sausage if you want, but it really um, gives me a chance to think about this idea that we can retain and even enhance and develop our cultural identities without the need for animal products. And so, to, also, I just make this all the time. I think it's really good. And uh, I adapted it from multiple recipes in various ways. So this is my take on red beans. and rice.
0: That's fantastic. I will say, if you and your fiance, uh, who I'm also going to try to grab onto this podcast at some point, um, can make a cookbook, it would be uh, awfully popular. I think a lot of people would be delighted to try Creole and Cajun Vegan as a, <laughs> yeah. as a cookbook.
1: Yes, we have. We fantasize about that. Um, there may be a food element if you're able to catch her uh, for your podcast. There may be a food element in her dissertation. I don't want to give it all away. But um, we right before we left Oregon, so this this was like June 2019. We hosted a vegan Cajun pop-up dinner um, where we did gumbo and bread pudding and a cup of sauce, hush puppies, and for each each. Um, course of the meal, we would have some sort of narrative about the food and how we adapted it and engaged in a lot of really interesting dialogue with the guests at the pop-up, um, very few of which were actually vegan, but just were very interested in, in the concept of vegan Cajun cooking. And that was a huge hit. It gave us some extra money for our move uh, to Louisiana and uh, really just kind of empowered us to keep up this work. And so um, we are, we're, we're keeping track of the vegan community in South Louisiana and are really excited to, to get to a point where we can more actively contribute to that. So yeah. I, I, this also contributes to that you know, opportunity for us.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the really uh, powerful elements of that thing I was talking about of having my students bring food and share it isn't just a chance for them to share about themselves, but there's a real, uh, there's something to the idea of sharing food with one another. It's a, it feels like a different psychological state than other things you might do with people. I mean, not for nothing that people say, oh, let's go get a coffee or let's go get, you know, a beer and talk about things. But sitting down to table with one another is even more sitting down and literally breaking bread with somebody else um, in terms of feeling a connection to them and feeling uh, that we're all in this together. So uh, I do suggest it as a, a classroom building activity for anyone that's interested.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great idea. Also, I, I, am actually trying to get a food ethics course created at McNeese right now. Um, so, well, let,
0: uh, you know, I created the one at my university, so uh, let me know and I'll happily send you along both the syllabus and the justification I wrote for why it ought to exist. Yeah,
1: I, that will be extremely helpful because I know the course creation process can be lengthy. And so I'm, uh, I'm trying to work on that to basically have something on the books by fall 2021. At this point,
0: I will deal. Um, I'll I'll trade you that. And then uh, if you do end up making a cookbook, consider me as one of your alpha testers for recipes and we'll be. Oh,
1: yes, absolutely. And I need you to also, yeah, I mean, I know that you make artisanal vegan cheese. So we've talked a little bit in the past about cheese ontology, which I think is also fascinating too. Yeah,
0: I'll have to get you back on to talk about that. So, Joey, is there anything that you'd like to just say in conclusion? Any kind of message you'd like to leave people with about this idea? of thinking in this sort of ontological and hermeneutic way about food?
1: Um, yeah, so for me, it's, it's simple. It's just the idea that if we understand that our experience is always undergirded and dependent on interpretation and in our, in our histories, personal and public, then that necessarily already applies to how we understand food um, and edible things in general. And because our ontological assumptions are so directly tied with ethics and regulatory decisions. I think it's just clearly key that we try to cultivate or unearth those assumptions that we largely take for granted.
0: That's great. And actually, I'm going to cheat and grab one more question from you, which is given that you have done uh, academia and practical engaged work, what would you say, what can you say to lure academics into getting their hands dirty and doing some more field uh, philosophy?
1: Oh, I would say it's, for me, just on a personal level, it's been deeply fulfilling. Um, I am, you know, there is like a certain discourse about field philosophy that's skeptical of a strictly top-down approach, uh, like we apply a general abstract theory to a concrete situation. So I think scholars who become involved in activism or advocacy of some sort will find that it's actually helpful to begin with the concrete, and you'll find that, that will, it will not only help to enhance your more theoretical approaches to philosophy, but to show that theory and practice are already necessarily intertwined and interdependent.
0: Perfect. Yeah, so people that are doing practical work with food do more academic work, and people that are doing academic work do more practical work. with food. <laughs> that was my conversation with Joey Tuminello. Links to all the many books he mentioned, as well as to Farm Forward, will all be in the show notes. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd appreciate it. It helps people find the show. Follow us on Twitter at FoodThoughtPod. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today.